Broken Timelines. Podcast Episode 12. By Jack Stornaway. Copyright 2019 Jack Stornaway. Dionysus, Disnuso, Diwonyo, and Bacchus. The most enigmatic Greek god, Dionysus, was steeped in Dumuzi Tammuz lore. For the Greeks, he was always the foreign god, even though being part of the Greek pantheon since the Mycenaean era, circa 1500-1100 BC, when they called him Disnuso. This foreign god, was also worshipped by the Minoans under the name Diwonyo, although it is unclear when they started worshipping him. The Minoans built a major civilization in the Aegean, long before the Greeks. Their civilization was devastated by the volcanic eruption of Thera, sometime between 1650 and 1500 BC, however, dating systems all disagree on when. Archaeologists working in Crete, generally claim it was circa 1500 BC, due to the style of pottery being made at the time. Carbon dating places it, between 1627 and 1600 BC, by examining the remains of plants buried at the time. Egyptologists have found a layer of pumice they think is related to Thera, at Tel El Daba, that is dated to the reign of King Amos I, and places the Thera eruption circa 1540 BC. Meanwhile, ice core samples from Greenland, show evidence of a large volcanic eruption circa 1642 BC, and dendrochronology, shows a disruption of the normal growth cycles of trees circa 1628 BC, in both North America and Europe. Additionally, Chinese records of the year 1618 BC, imply a large volcanic eruption somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. This eruption of Thera, didn't destroy the Minoans but did cause a great deal of damage throughout the Aegean. The eruption caused tsunamis and ash fall across the region, damaging their economy and causing their civilization's decline. In the longer term, the decline of the Minoans ultimately allowed the rise of the Greeks. Like the history of other nearby cultures, the Minoans' timeline is based on how it correlates with Egypt, however, unlike the Middle Eastern cultures, there is no complex written histories, or invasions by other cultures before the Greeks invaded, near the end of Minoan history. The Minoan timeline was largely the creation of Arthur Evans, circa 1900 AD. Evans was the discoverer of the Minoan civilization, and subsequently divided the civilization into three periods, which he lined up with the periods of the three Egyptian kingdoms, based on imported Egyptian pottery and artifacts. Archaeologists working in Crete, have largely followed Evans' model, adjusting the Minoan timeline, to keep it in sync with the contemporary view of Egyptian history. This means their history is currently viewed as falling between 3500 and 1100 BC, beginning a few hundred years before the unification of Egypt, and ending during the Greek Dark Age. If Minoan history is placed in the ULT, then it would span approximately 6000 to 1100 BC. Evans himself, suggested that the earliest phase of Minoan civilization looked like an Egyptian early dynastic colony, predating the old kingdom in Egypt. The massive megalithic stones from the earliest phase of Minoan civilization, such as those of the Gunia Palace walls, look like the masonry in the Egyptian megalithic temples and Osirion. If Diwonyo was being worshipped throughout Minoan history, 
then he could plausibly be a direct precursor to Osiris, or he could have been adopted by the Minoans at some point from Osiris, however, there is no reason to assume he was. We have no stories surviving about Diwanyo, or Disnuso, and are therefore limited to studying Dionysus, and his Roman equivalent Bacchus, to understand this early Mediterranean version of Dumuzid. Unfortunately, as Dionysus was that mysterious foreign god, he was tied to many cults, and there were many theories of his origin. The Greeks tried to integrate him into their pantheon several ways, and sometimes listed him as an Olympian. He was said to the son of Zeus and the mortal Selim, or, in the Orphic tradition, the son of Zeus and Persephone, the queen of the underworld. In the Eleusinian mysteries, he was called Deacus, the husband of Demeter. As Demeter was another deity inherited from the Minoans, who called her Damit, and she was a mother goddess, a grain goddess, and an earth goddess, this shows a clear Minoan parallel to the Phrygian Sibiliatis, and the Cypriot Aphrodite Adonis relationships. The Eleusinian Mysteries was an ancient Greek religion that was practiced in the city of Eleusis. Little is known about the origin of the religion, however, it was practiced during the entire pre-Christian Greco-Roman era, in Greece and then Rome. It is believed to have originated somewhere in Anatolia or the Minoan civilization. The name of the town, Eleusis, is believed to be related to the Greek goddess Ilithia, who was called Erotija during the Mycenaean era. This goddess was widely worshipped through the Aegean, under a variety of names including Elysia in Laconia and Mycenae. Some have linked the name Elysia to the Greek concept of the island of the happy dead, the Elysian Fields. The Elysian Fields, or Elysium, was a garden or land far to the west of Greece, described as a paradise without snow or storms. It was originally considered separate from the underworld ruled by Hades, and was where the gods went when they died. Later, it became a place where anyone could go when they died, as long as the gods approved of the way they lived their life. Otherwise, they would be dragged to the fires of Hades' underworld. These two lands, would later serve as the basis for the Christian heaven and hell concepts, neither of which have a basis in Judaism. In both classical and modern Judaism, the soul dies with the body, however, if deemed worthy, will be resurrected at some point, when God gets around to it. Some exceptional Jews did get taken to heaven, such as Elijah and Enoch, however, they were alive when God took them, and were still alive when returned to the earth. This understanding was clearly still present in the first group of Jewish Christians, as Jesus had to be resurrected before he could be taken up to heaven. However as Christianity spread across the Roman Empire, heaven and Hades became the two fates waiting for everyone at the end of their lives. In the Odyssey, circa 700 BC, Homer referred to the fair-haired, Radamanthus, ruling Elysium. Radamanthus' name is believed to be derived from the Greek word damaso which means to overpower, tame, or conquer. In the Greek legends of the ancient Minoan civilization, King Minos had a daughter named Ariadne, who was in charge of the labyrinth the Minotaur was kept in. In most versions of her story she married Dionysus, however, according to Plutarch there was an alternate version of her story, where she was married to Radamanthus. While we don't know what source Plutarch was using, he certainly would have known the more common Dionysus version, and so giving her this somewhat obscure husband seems odd, unless he truly believed the Radamanthus version of the story was the original.
as both these gods were said to be married to Ariadne, and both were associated with the dead, it is plausible that these are two divergent versions of the Minoan Diwanyo. The story of Ariadne and Dionysus was certainly spread far enough that divergent version of Dionysus could have appeared, the Etruscans called them Ariatha and Fuflans. The city of Eleusis, was apparently originally called Caesara, before Demeter visited the city, after which it was renamed Eleusis. This story does not make any sense, unless the early Greeks considered Eleusis to be another name for Demeter. The story of the city's renaming, is embedded within the overarching narrative of the Eleusinian mysteries. While Demeter was looking for her daughter Persephone, and happened to be disguised as an old lady, she was found by the daughters of King Kelios of Caesarea. They took her back to the palace to be the nursemaid to the baby prince Demophon. King Kelios' wife, Queen Metanira, became jealous of the growing relationship between her son Demophon, and his nursemaid Demeter, and insulted Demeter, causing Demeter to remove her disguise, revealing herself to the Caesarian royal family. After that, King Kelios ordered the building of a shrine for Demeter in Caesarea, and at some point the city's name was changed to Eleusis, to commemorate Demeter's visit. It is unclear if this was ever a part of the mysteries, and seems like an unlikely chapter, goddess stops in the middle of panicked quest to find daughter, to nurse young prince. This story is most likely something that was invented as theopolitical propaganda, sometime in the Greek Dark Age, or, based on the archaic name, the earlier Mycenaean period. Demeter's quest, to rescue Persephone from the underworld, was a central theme of the Eleusinian Mysteries. In the Eleusinian Mysteries, Persephone, who was also called Kor, meaning maiden in Greek, was abducted by Hades, ruler of the underworld, which started Demeter's quest. Demeter was so distraught over the loss of her daughter, that she caused a drought, which caused both the god and mortals to starve. The people and gods cried out to Zeus, ruler of the Greek pantheon, and he decided to intercede, sending Hermes to the underworld, to demand that Hades release Persephone. Hades obeyed Zeus' commands, but first tricked Persephone into eating some pomegranate seeds. Apparently, it was the law of the fates, called Moirai in Greek, that once someone ate the fruit of the underworld, they were forced to live there eternally. This forced Persephone to spend four or six months in the underworld each year. The accounts differ on the number of seeds she ate, and the resulting number of months in the underworld. These mysteries, can be considered an elaborate story, designed to explain why the seasons come and go, however, it is clearly related to the Dumuzid epic in several ways. Demeter and Inanna, are both mother and earth goddesses. Persephone and Ereshkigal, were both the queen of the underworld. Both the Eleusinian mysteries, and the Sumerian epic, Inanna descends to the underworld, are focused on the tale of these two female protagonists, and not their husbands, Dionysus, Dumuzid, Gugalana, or Hades. In both cases, when the god that interceded did so, he sent someone connected with sexual ambiguity down into the underworld to do his bidding, Enki's Gala priests, and Hermes, the father of Hermaphroditus, the Hermaphrodite god. There are obviously many differences too. In the Sumerian version, the woman that is forced to spend half the year in the underworld is Jeshtinana, Inanna's sister-in-law, not the queen of the underworld. In the Sumerian version, Gugalana had died, 
and Ereshkigal was ruling the underworld, however, in the Eleusinian version, Hades was alive and ruling the underworld. This point may indicate the Eleusinian version was drawn from a later Semitic version of the story, when Ergil was co-ruling the underworld with Ereshkigal. The god that interceded was Zeus in the Eleusinian version, not Anu's equivalent Uranus, however, the Greeks really didn't have any interest in Uranus, and only some vague creation stories in which he was involved. However, Zeus' equivalent in the Sumerian pantheon, was Enlil, and Enki's Greek equivalent was Poseidon. The fact that the story was changed from Enki or Poseidon, to Enlil or Zeus, may date the adoption period. Almost all of the gods in the story are found in the Mycenaean Greek period, Zeus as Diwan Diwo, Poseidon as Posidau or Posidou One, Demeter as Cytoptyniger, Persephone as Preswa, and Dionysus as Diwoniso. The only god that does not seem to date back to the Mycenaean Greek period is Hades. Additionally, a couple of these gods can be traced back to Minoans, namely Dionysus as Diwonio, and Demeter as Damit, meaning aspects of this story may date back to the Minoans, and were certainly known to the Mycenaean Greeks. Zeus is an archetypal Indo-European storm god, related to Indra, Thor, Jupiter, Perun, and many others. He was worshipped by the Mycenaean Greeks, and is believed to have entered the Aegean region with the earliest Greeks by 1500 BC. On the other hand, the origin of Poseidon's name has been debated since the time of ancient Greece, and is theorized to be pre-Greek, inherited from the cultures in the Aegean before the Greeks migrated into the region. What is clear, is that in the Mycenaean period, Poseidon was far more popular than Zeus. Zeus gained popularity in the Greek Dark Ages, and emerged as the head of the Olympians, ruling Olympus and serving as the supreme god for the Greeks until the Christian era. Persephone's name is also believed to be pre-Greek in origin as well, as ancient Greeks had several different versions of her name across their territory. Hades' name is of unknown origin. As with Poseidon and Persephone, Greeks argued the origin of Hades' name through the classical period, and modern historians continue the debate. Plato devoted a section of his dialogue, Cratylus, to the etymology of Hades' name, and modern linguists have proposed both Indo-European origins, and non-Greek origins. What is known is that in the time of Homer, circa 700 BC, he was known as Aids, as well as other regional variations, including Idinus, Idos, Ide, and Aida. Seeing the similarity between these names and the Cypriot Adonis is not difficult, however, Adonis was the youthful lover of Aphrodite, while Hades was the raper of Persephone, meaning that Hades could not be derived directly from Adonis. The two gods could still both derive from contact with Phoenicians, as Adon simply meant lord in Canaanite, and both were lords of something. In fact, both could be interpreted as lords of the dead by the Canaanite era. Tammuz was the god that died for part of the year, and Nergil was married to the queen of the underworld. However, if Hades was an adaption of Adon, it was clearly more corrupted than the Cypriot version. In the Greek version, it was Hades who raped the youthful Persephone, not the other way around, while in the Cypriot version, Adonis was still a youthful lover of Aphrodite. Gender all reversals aside, the correlations between the rape of Persephone, and Nergil and Ereshkigal, are difficult to ignore.
In both cases, a youthful person is forced into a marriage by the ruler of the underworld. In one case the raper is the queen of the underworld, and in the other case, she becomes the queen of the underworld. In both Sumerian stories, the female characters are dominant, both Inanna, and Eresh Kigal, are depicted as being both generally and sexually dominant in their relationships with their respective husbands. The Greek Aphrodite and Demeter goddesses, were similarly depicted, as was the Phrygian Sibylle, however, Persephone was the opposite, an adolescent girl abducted by Hades. While many of the western stories of Aphrodite, Demeter, and Sibylle might be based on adopted beliefs, dating from the Sumerian period, the rape of Persephone must have been inspired by the later subservient Eresh Kigal, from the Babylonian period. The Babylonian era version of Nergal and Eresh Kigal, is known to date to at least 1350 BC, and has been found as far west as Egypt, and so it is plausible that it could be the source for the Greek story. The ancient Greeks themselves, debated where the foreign god Dionysus had come from. In some Greek cults, Dionysus was considered a Thracian and Phrygian god, in others he was Asian, and in others he was Ethiopian. The Greek historian Pliny the Elder, and the Roman historian Arian, both claimed that Dionysus had originated in India, Pliny claiming that he had founded the first Indian dynasty 6,451 years before the conquest of Alexander. The ancient Greeks believed Dionysus' name was derived from the Greek words Dios and Nyssa. Dios meant Zeus and implied God when embedded in the name of another god. Nyssa referred to the name of the mountain Dionysus was born on, and where he lived with the Nisiades. Unfortunately, the Greeks didn't know where Mount Nyssa was. Hesychius of Alexandria, who lived around 500 AD, listed a number of locations that different ancient Greeks had suggested for Mount Nyssa including Arabia, Babylon, Cilicia, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Libya, Lydia, Macedonia, Naxos, the Red Sea, Syria, Thessaly, and Thrace. The Greeks that preferred the Indian origin, believed that Mount Nyssa, was Mount Meru. Nyssa becomes even more complicated than simply being a long-lost mountain, with fear sides of Syros observation in the 6th century BC, that Nyssa was derived from Nusa an archaic Greek word for tree. These correlations with other Eurasian belief systems have led many scholars to associate Nyssa with the Axis Mundi world mountain or world tree concept. Dionysus and Demeter, as Diwanyo and Damit, are both Minoan gods. That the earliest Greeks either adopted or synchronized with their existing gods. This means that the Dumuzid and Inanna, or Tammuz and Ishtar story, could have been adopted by the Minoans, at any point in their history. As both Poseidon and Persephone, are believed to be pre-Greek names as well, the core cast of characters from the Dumuzid tale are all present, Dumuzid and his wife Inanna, her sister or daughter Persephone, and Poseidon, the god that intercedes. Without Hades, Persephone could not have been raped, and so had to be the queen of the underworld in her own right. The Greeks inherited some odd stories from the Minoans, including one about the birth and death of Zeus in a cave on Crete. As Zeus is an Indo-European deity, and the Minoans are generally not considered to have been Indo-Europeans, this must have originally been a different god who became conflated with Zeus at some point after the Greeks arrived in the Aegean. 
This Zeus was known by the name Zeus Velchanos, and is said to have been born, and then later died, in Dictaean Cave, today identified as Psychro Cave. Zeus Velchanos was always depicted as a youth, and was married to a great goddess in the Minoan religion, although it isn't clear which one. Throughout Greek history, Hades was commonly called Zeus, by those wishing to avoid saying the name Hades, generally titled as Zeus Ktheneos, Zeus Katakthenios, or Zeus Plausios. All of these Zeus's titles referred to the abode of Hades. Clearly, the Greeks were using the word Zeus as a synonym for God, meaning Zeus Ktheneos can be translated as earthly God, Zeus Katakthenios means God under the earth, and Zeus Plausios means God bringing wealth. If the classical Greeks used the name Zeus when referring to Hades, it is plausible that Zeus Velchanos may have been the Minoan forerunner of Hades, married to the queen of the underworld, but still a youth, like the Babylonian Nergil. This would imply that the big shift in the beliefs, began sometime during the early Greek era, when the sky father god was interjected into the story, and Persephone went from being the queen of the underworld to a rape victim. In the Greek story about the rape of Persephone, it is, in fact, Zeus that advised Hades to abduct Persephone and rape her. In this context, this version of the story seems like a deliberate attack on the ancient goddesses of the region. Zeus not only had the queen of the underworld abducted and raped, but he also got to play the hero, when the Earth Mother came crying and begging for the release of Persephone. A trifecta of theopropaganda, in which the Sky Father subjugated both of the ancient goddesses, and got to play the compassionate hero who frees the maiden. The Eleusinian version of Dionysus, he was sometimes called Iacus, although historians do not know why, as the Eleusinian mysteries were never written down. This name seems to be the source of the name of Bacchus, the Roman version of Dionysus. Both the Greek and Roman versions of this god's worship were focused on the drinking of a psychoactive wine, that would put participants into an altered state of consciousness. After the cult of Bacchus had spread to Rome, circa 200 BC, additional aspects were introduced, including ripping apart living animals and eating them raw, and polyamorous orgies. In 186 BC, the Senate issued the legislation to reform the Bacchanalia, placing the priests of the cult under imperial authority. According to the Roman historian Livy, writing 200 years later, the Senate needed to execute 7,000 cult leaders to exert their authority over the cult of Bacchus. Over the following two centuries Bacchus merged with the Roman god of wine Liber Pater. The Greeks also incorporated the story of Eos and Tithonus into their pantheon. Eos and Totonus appear to be an Anatolian version of the story, adopted during the Greek Dark Ages or earlier. Eos was the Titanus of the dawn, descended from a Proto-Indo-European archetype called Hausos. Other goddesses derived from Hausos include the Vedic goddess Ushas, Baltic goddess Osrine, and Roman goddess Aurora. Eos' young lover was Tithonus, a prince of Troy, long before the Battle of Troy. In Homer's version of the myth, Eos fell in love with Tithonus, and asked Zeus to grant him immortality, which Zeus did, however, she did not ask Zeus to keep Tithonus young, and so he aged but could not die. As described in the hymn to Aphrodite. But when loathsome old age pressed full upon him, and he could not move nor lift his limbs, this seemed to her, in her heart the best counsel. She laid him in a room, 
and put to the shining doors. There, he babbles endlessly, and no more has strength at all, such as once he had, in his supple limbs. This darker version of the story, takes a different path from most, in which the dumb used character either remained eternally young, or periodically died and resurrected, also remaining young. The core of this story does appear to derive from the ancient story, of an older more powerful female monarch, or goddess, and her younger male spouse who was granted immortality. The fact that the Titaness was an Indo-European goddess, implies that the Greeks may have carried the story into Greece, however, the fact that they placed the hero in Troy, also indicates a possible Anatolian source for the story. Either way, this version appears to be Indo-European in origin. Panthers and Lions There is a common element across the varied Dumuzid-like myths, the panthers and lions. These are not the panthers of today's world, but rather an extinct species that once apparently lived on the mountain in the steppes. The modern word, panther, is derived from the name of the mythical creature. According to Pliny the Elder, panthers emitted a scent that drew other animals to them, which they would then kill. This sounds like an attempt to explain the strange behavior of animals infected by toxoplasma, which is a parasite most felines carry. When infected by toxoplasma most animals lose their natural fear of felines, some even become attracted to their natural predators. In the Middle Ages, the dragon was added to the panther myth, as the only creature immune to the panther's scent. In the Greek myths of Dionysus, he rode a panther, which is virtually identical to Pravati riding her mounts, Dawn, the lion, and Manistala, the tiger. Parvati, whose name means mountain has been described as the Indian version of Sibylle, and Aphrodite. Dionysus Roman equivalent, Bacchus, rode a chariot pulled by a panther. Likewise, the chariots of Ishtar, Sibylle, Demeter, and another variant, Rhea, were all pulled by lions. Inanna was depicted as standing on the back of lions, implying she rode them. In all the Mesopotamian depictions, the lions were depicted as having no manes, which led to Greeks identifying them as panthers. Dumuzid's alter ego, Ishtaran, was also depicted as being accompanied by lions, as was Zababa. These panthers, or lions, were sometimes also given the power of human speech, and the ability to use tools, in the myths surrounding them, becoming the lion man guardians in the Garden of the Gods in the Dumuzid saga. This motif is also found in Egypt, where the lion woman hybrid, Sekhmet, was the consort of Papa. The Egyptian fortress of the Smiths, Memphis, was named after Papa, which connects Semhith back with the Sumerian story of a garden, in a fortress of Smiths, on a mountain, in the steppes. She even had a partner guardian, Bastet, who was also still depicted as a fierce lion woman in the Old Kingdom, however, she became a housecat woman hybrid by the New Kingdom. This twin lion's guardian concept, has been in China, since at least the Han Dynasty. Guardian lions, also called lion dogs, have been common at the entrances to important buildings, such as temples and palaces throughout China. These guardian lions are believed to have been imported to China from India by Buddhist missionaries, around 2000 years ago. Due to Chinese cultural influence over the past 2000 years, the guardian lions are now commonly seen in Cambodia, Japan, Korea, Laos, Myanmar, Nepal, Singapore, Sri Lanka, 
Thailand, and Vietnam. While the anthropomorphic lion people may be more entertaining, the fact that there are often the depictions of gods with lions, or panthers, suggests that the guardians may have originally been lion tamers, and not human-feline hybrids. Preposterous as riding a large cat might seem, the panther myth explains the lion-men chimeras, connected to the dumb-used law stories across several cultures. Several extinct large cats, once roamed the Eurasian continent, whether humans ever tamed or owed them is a different question. Saber-toothed cats, and European leopards, became extinct around 27,000 to 28,000 years ago, while the Eurasian cave lions became extinct circa 10,900 years ago. The European leopards would have been virtually identical to the leopards that currently roam Africa and southern Asia, which are slightly smaller than the humans, and therefore could not serve as a mount, however, have been successfully raised in captivity, and can be trained to some extent. Saber-toothed cats were slightly larger than leopards, however still not large enough to ride. If any were ever tamed it is unlikely to ever be known. The Eurasian cave lions, were one of the largest felines we know of, and were the size of the first horses humans rode. They also match the panther myth in that they are believed to have had no mane. As for whether they were ever tamed, or ridden, we may never know, however, if the panther myth of a rideable cat was based on a real animal, it was most likely a Eurasian cave lion. Yemo the Shepherd Another archaic hero that has major correlations with King Dumuzid the Shepherd, is the reconstructed Indo-European hero Yemo, the founder twin. Yemo has been reconstructed as part of the Indo-European pantheon, based on several similar heroes found in ancient Indo-European beliefs. These include the Hindu god Yama, the Zoroastrian king Jamshid, and the Germanic ice giant Ymir. The Zoroastrian and Hindu versions seem to preserve more of the original story, as the Indo-Iranian peoples became literate long before the Germanic tribes. The oldest Germanic poems that mention Ymir only date to the early 1200s AD. Meanwhile, Yama is first mentioned in Mandala 10, of the Rig Veda Samhita, which the conventional Indian timeline, herein referred to as the CIT, dates to circa 1500 to 1200 BC. The Zoroastrian king Jamshid, was first mentioned in Yash 19, Vendidad 2, of the Avesta, where he was named Yimakshitu in the younger Avestan language. The Vendidad, and the younger Avestan sections of the Avesta, were likely compiled in Central Asia, sometime between 3700 and 900 BC, although there is a great deal of debate about the dating of the Avesta. In the somewhat confusing Avestan story of Yima, he began life as a shepherd, yet is also listed as the fourth king of the Pishtadian dynasty. This dynasty, preceded the Kyanian dynasty, who were apparently in power when the Avesta was compiled, however, no physical evidence of either dynasty has been found. While he was out shepherding, he was approached by a being of light, called Ahura Mazda, who asked Yima to teach his law to the people. Yima refused, and they negotiated a deal where Yima agreed to rule over and nourish the earth and make sure that living things prospered. In trade for being a good king, Ahura Mazda gave Yima a dagger, a golden seal, and immortality for all his people. After 300 years had passed, the land that Yima's people inhabited was full. This land was called Arianum Vare, and its inhabitants were the Arians. 
Outside of it, was the lands of the Davis who served Araman. After three hundred years, Ahura Mazda returned to Yima, and told him that the land was overpopulated, and so King Yima, took the dagger and the golden seal, and expanded the land of the Arianum Vaya. All of this is interpreted somewhat magically in the Zoroastrian religion, wherein the Davis are insubstantial demons, and Ahriman is the devil, however, the story itself seems somewhat ordinary, other than the immortality, and beings of light, that kept visiting the ancient Aryans. The expanded Arianum Vaya, was able to house the Aryans for six centuries before it became overpopulated again. And so once more, King Yima took his dagger and his golden seal, and expanded the Arianum Vaya. Again, the expanded Arianum Vaya was able to house the Aryans for some time, but then began getting overpopulated around 900 years later, and so once more King Yimu expanded the land. Soon afterward, Ahura Mazda returned, with a contingent of Yazatas, a word that is generally translated as angels. King Yima, also brought along a council of immortal Aryans when meeting with Ahura Mazda. The beings of light, warned the king and his council of immortals, of the coming evil winters. Apparently, somewhere outside of the Arianum Vare, Araman had done something that was causing the world's climate to change. Ahura Mazda warned Yima before the onset of the evil winters, and advised him to build an underground city, described in the Vendidad 2.22-30. And Ahura Mazda spake unto Yima, saying, O fair Yima, son of Vivanghat! Upon the material world, the evil winters are about to fall, that shall bring the fierce, deadly frost. Upon the material world, the evil winters are about to fall, that shall make snowflakes fall thick, even in Arivi deep on the highest tops of mountains. And the beasts that live in the wilderness, and those that live on the tops of the mountains, and those that live in the bosom of the dale, shall take shelter in underground abodes. Before that winter, the country would bear plenty of grass for cattle, before the waters had flooded it. Now, after the melting of the snow, O Yima! a place wherein the footprint of a sheep may be seen, will be a wonder in the world. Therefore, make the avara, long as a riding ground on every side of the square, and thither bring the seeds of sheep and oxen, of men, of dogs, of birds, and of red blazing fires. Therefore, make the avara, long as a riding ground on every side of the square, to be an abode for man, avara, long as a riding ground on every side of the square, for oxen and sheep. There, Thou shalt make waters flow in a bed a hathra long, there thou shalt settle birds, on the green that never fades, with food that never fails. There, thou shalt establish dwelling places, consisting of a house with a balcony, a courtyard, and as gallery. Thither, thou shalt bring the seeds of men and women, of the greatest, best, and finest on this earth, thither, thou shalt bring the seeds of every kind of cattle, of the greatest, best, and finest on this earth. Thither, Thou shalt bring the seeds of every kind of tree, of the highest of size and sweetest of odor on this earth, thither thou shalt bring the seeds of every kind of fruit, the best of savor and sweetest of odor. All those seeds shalt thou bring, two of every kind, to be kept inexhaustible there, so long as those men shall stay in the vara. There, shall be no humpbacked, none bulged forward there, no impotent, no lunatic, no malicious, no liar, no one spiteful, none jealous no one with decayed tooth, no lepers to be pent up, nor any of the brands wherewith Angramainu stamps the bodies of mortals. In the largest part of the place thou shalt make nine streets, 
six in the middle part, three in the smallest. To the streets of the largest part thou shalt bring a thousand seeds of men and women, to the streets of the middle part, six hundred, to the streets of the smallest part, three hundred. That var thou shalt seal up with thy golden seal, and thou shalt make a door, and a window self-shining within. The Vendidad continues, with King Yima building the described underground city, and then taking two thousand Aryans into the Vara, and sealing the door, before the evil winters covered the Arianum Vale with snow, covering the valleys as high as the peaks of the mountains. There are certainly some differences between this version of the story and many of the other Dumuzid-like stories. For one, there are no female deities present. This is however due to the nature of the Avesta itself. Zarathustra was teaching a monotheistic religion, and therefore all gods, other than Ahura Mazda, were demoted to either Yazatas or Devas. There are however several similarities to the Dumuzid stories. Both kings are also called the shepherd, both stories include an underground city, both stories involve immortality, and most distinctively, both stories are set at the onset of the last glacial period. According to the Sumerian king list Dumuzid's reign was somewhere between 129,579 and 93,579 BC while the last glacial period is estimated to have begun 115,000 years ago. Considering that both the Avestan Yima, and Greek Tithonus, descend from a Proto-Indo-European original, it seems that the followers of Zarathustra cut a lot from the story, including Eos, and possibly something going wrong with whatever immortality process Zeus or Ahura Mazda gave the Aryans. While the two stories are greatly divergent, the final resting place of both deities seems to be similar. The room where Eos, left Tithonus, was sealed with shining doors, while the Vara, which Yima never left, was described as being closed with a golden seal, which also turned on the self-shining windows, which has historically been interpreted, as either a magical, or an artificial light source, depending on the interpreter. The Queen of Heaven Throughout the Babylonian Dark Age, the worship of Inanus spread throughout the Semitic cultures of Mesopotamia, under a variety of local names, including the Babylonian and Assyrian, Ishtar, Canaanite, Asheroth, and Hebrew, Asherah, as well as north into the Hittite civilization under the name of Azadu. She was also known under the titles of Elat, meaning goddess, and Kodesh, meaning holiness. During the Second Egyptian Dark Age, worship of the goddess spread into Egypt, under the name of Katesh, which was carried into Egypt by Canaanites, starting in the 14th dynasty. This strongly implies that the Babylonian Dark Age happened before the 14th dynasty, however, that is not the conventional view. Currently, the 14th dynasty is placed between 1705 and 1690 BCCET while the Babylonian Dark Age is placed between the fall of the old Hittite kingdom, circa 1524 BCCET, and the foundation of the Middle Assyrian and New Hittite kingdoms, sometime before the Battle of Megiddo, in 1457 BC. In the ULT the two Dark Ages happened at the same time, with the 14th dynasty happening between 2793 and 2533 BC, while the Babylonian Dark Age happened between 2965 BC, and sometime before the Battle of Megiddo circa 1457 BC. The holy city of this goddess, 
was the city of Kadesh, also transliterated as Kadesh, located near the modern border of Syria and Lebanon. The earliest reference to this city, is from the reign of King Ishiadu of Katna, who was contemporary with the Assyrian Old Kingdom King, Shamchiadad I, from circa 3158 to 3191 BCULT, or 1785 to 1752 BCCMT. It is unclear when the city was renamed Kadesh, however, the older Akkadian name was recorded as Giza. The name was clearly named Kadesh at the end of the Dark Age, as the kings of Kadesh led two resistance movements against Egyptian expansion, culminating in the Battle of Megiddo in 1457 BC, which led to the collapse of the Mitanni Empire, and the Battle of Kadesh in 1274 BC, which led to the collapse of the Hittite Empire. In each culture, this goddess was known as the Queen of Heaven, which is a clear descendant of Inanna's title, Lady of Heaven. In each culture, this Queen of Heaven was also married to the local highest god, outside of Babylonia and Assyria where she was married to Tammuz. In Canaan, she was married to El, in Israel, she was married to Yahweh, in the Hittite Empire, she was married to Elkanersa, and in Egypt, she was married to Papa. According to the Phoenician historian Sankaniathan's Phoenician history, from the Egyptian New Kingdom era, the Canaanite Asheroth, was also the Greek Titanus Dione, whose name also translates as goddess. Dione appears to have been worshipped in the Mycenaean era, under then named Euja in the Linear B script. In Phoenician history, Dione was married to El, who the Greeks considered the Canaanite version of the Titan Kronos. This suggests that in the Mycenaean pantheon Kronos' wife was Dione. In the later Greek pantheon of the Classical era, Kronos' wife was Rhea, an earth and nature goddess, who was also depicted as riding a lion. The Mycenaean Greek civilization is generally dated to between 1600 and 1100 BC, however, some archaeologists have suggested the early Greeks may have been in Greece since 2500 BC, or earlier. The Mycenaean Greeks appeared in Greece during the Second Egyptian Dark Age, and Babylonian Dark Age, showing up in the records of the New Hittite and New Egyptian empires, as a significant power from the beginning of the New Kingdom era. The Egyptians referred to the Greeks as Danaea, starting circa 1437 BC, during the reign of King Tutmos III, early in the New Kingdom era. The Hittites called the Greeks the Ahiyawa, a reference to Achaia, in Greece, starting around 1400 BC as the New Kingdom emerged from the Babylonian Dark Age. The fact that the worship of the Queen of Heaven had spread as far as it did, integrating into many local religions during this Dark Age, speaks volumes as to how long the Dark Age lasted. These Queens of Heaven, and their respective husbands, formed a widespread belief system throughout the Middle East, Egypt, and the Aegean, in which the lion-riding Queen of Heaven, was married to the supreme god in each region, often supplanting older goddesses. The fact that Inanna's cult was limited to the temples in Uruk and Nippur, before the Akkadian era, and only started expanding in the old Babylonian era, is well documented by Assyriologists. In the conventional timelines, the worship of Inanna the Queen of Heaven, started spreading from Uruk circa 2334 BC, during the rule of Sargon of Akkad. During the old Babylonian Empire, between 1894 and 1595 BC, the worship of Ishtar the Queen of Heaven, 
became widely practiced in Babylonia, where she was married to Tammuz. The worship of Asheroth the Queen of Heaven, had spread into Canaan, likely before 1752 BC, where she became the patron goddess of Kadesh, as the wife of El. In Canaan, she was also known as Kodesh, which is the name that the Canaanite 14th dynasty used, when they introduced her worship to Egypt. Even though the Canaanite 14th dynasty was only 15 years long, Kadesh became widely worshipped across Egypt as Papa's wife replacing Papa's original consorts Bastet and Sekhmet. Sometime during the old Hittite Empire, between 1664 and 1524 BC, Azadu was adopted by the Hittites, as the wife of Elknursa. Elknursa's name literally translates as El the creator of earth, implying the Hittites had adopted El along with Asheroth from the Canaanites. Sometime before 1437 BC, the Mycenaean Greeks adopted Elat into their pantheon as Dione, and had her married to the Titan Kronos. This timeline is possible, but does not seem likely given how quickly certain events needed to take place, such as the Egyptians accepting Katesh as Papa's wife in only 15 years. In the ULT, the worship of the Inanna the Queen of Heaven started spreading from Uruk, circa 3885 BC, during the rule of Sargon of Akkad. During the old Babylonian Empire, between 3352 and 3038 BC, the worship of Ishtar the Queen of Heaven, became widely practiced in Babylonia, where she was married to Tammuz. The worship of Asheroth the Queen of Heaven spread to Canaan likely before 3191 BC, where she became the patron goddess of Kadesh, as the wife of El. In Canaan, she was also known as Kodesh which is the name that the Canaanite 14th dynasty used when they introduced her worship to Egypt. During the 260-year-long Canaanite 14th dynasty, Kadesh became widely worshipped across Egypt, as Papa's wife, replacing Papa's original consorts Bastet and Sekhmet. Sometime during the old Hittite empire, between 3103 and 2965 BC, Azadu and Elknursa were adopted by the Hittites, from the Canaanites. Sometime before 1437 BC, the Mycenaean Greeks adopted Elat into their pantheon as Dione and had her married to the Titan Kronos. The longer timeline of the ULT does seem to make more sense than the conventional timelines, as religions generally take centuries to become adopted by large portions of a nation's population. Antediluvian Eridu. The first two kings listed on the Sumerian king lists, were Alulim, and Alanga, who were listed as the kings of the Antediluvian Eridu, between 266,379 to 237,579 BC, and 237,579 to 201,579 BC, respectively. This time period, falls within a highly variable time in the Earth's climatic history. According to the analysis of ice core samples from Antarctica, around 270,000 years ago, the world was in a glacial period. By 240,000 years ago, the world had emerged from that glacial period, however, it sank back to a glacial period within 10,000 years, and then rose back out of that glacial period within another 10,000 years. The world remained in this state until around 200,000 years ago when the world sank into the penultimate glacial period. 
This rapidly fluctuating time period, falls within one of the most chaotic periods of the last 800,000 years. The foundation of Eridu at circa 266,379 BC, roughly correlates with the depth of the glacial period of the era circa 270,000 years ago. The transition from Alialim to Alanga, circa 237,579 BC, roughly corresponds to the height of the brief interglacial around 240,000 years ago. And finally, the fall of Eridu, circa 201,579 BC, happened around the beginning of the penultimate glacial period circa 200,000 years ago. The name Eridu is generally translated as mighty place, or guidance place, depending on the translator. The Sumerian logograms that spell out Eridu are none and key. Like many Sumerian words, the logograms do not spell out the pronunciation of the word, meaning that the word was either adopted or inherited from another culture. These logograms can be translated as non, meaning, prince, noble, master, to rise up, great, fine, or deep. And key, meaning, earth, place, area, location, ground, or grain. This would mean that Eridu's original name could be translated as something vague like prince of the area, or noble place, or, conversely, as something specific, like prince of grain, which is similar to the mythical Chinese king, Haoji, whose name translates as lord of millet. The origin of millet is a significant historical enigma, as the grain appears to have originated in multiple places on the earth. In China, the cultivation of foxtail millet, and broom corn millet, has been traced back to between 21,000 to 17,500 BC, while Proso millet, was domesticated in Greece sometime before 3000 BC. Little millet, was domesticated in South Asia by 3000 BC. Pearl millet, was domesticated in Mali by 2500 BC, and finger millet, was domesticated in Ethiopia sometime before 2000 BC. The cultivation of Asian varieties of millet, had spread across the Eurasian steppes to Europe, by 5000 BC, while both East and West African varieties of millet had spread to India by 1800 BC. Foxtail millet, barnyard millet, and black finger millet, are all mentioned in the Yajurveda, indicating that they were all being cultivated in Central Asia by 1800 BC ULT, or 1200 CID. The widespread range of wild millet varieties, has been debated among paleoethnobotanists, questioning whether the widespread range, represents the wild progenitor of millet, or represents feral forms of millet that escaped from domesticated production. While there is currently no known evidence for the cultivation of millet prior to Chinese adoption circa 21,000 BC, it is clear that humans were cultivating grains by 200,000 years ago, as grain grinding stones have been found dating back to that time in Africa. If millet was harvested in Eurasia, prior to the onset of the penultimate glaciation, the crops would have failed drastically at the beginning of the glacial period, as millet is frost sensitive and grows in soil that is 14 degrees Celsius or warmer. Millet is a highly drought-resistant crop, and therefore would have been one of the few crops that could have been grown in warmer climates during the arid glacial periods. The names of the two kings Alulim, and Alanga, translate as stag, 
and pipe irrigator respectively. These names are related to specific agricultural periods, stag implying animal husbandry, and pipe irrigator implying grain or vegetable cultivation. While there is no clear evidence of either animal husbandry, or irrigated agriculture, before the onset of the penultimate glaciation, there are the Dali man remains that were found along with ox remains dating back to 260,000 years ago. The time period of the Dali man remains, correspond with the time period of Alulim, as recorded in the Sumerian king lists, between 266,379, and 237,579 BC. The Dali man remains were found in Dali County, Shanxi Province, in China, implying that the land of Eridu may have been in China. The remains of Dali man, have been described as being either early Homo sapiens, or late Homo erectus, implying that the first modern humans may have originated in the region. Conclusion The current conventional Mesopotamian timeline, of dynastic Mesopotamia is impossible. Believing in it means endorsing the idea the Egyptians lagged a thousand years behind the Sumerians technologically during the Middle Kingdom. This timeline forces the Bronze Age Harappan civilization, to have existed as recently as 1200 BC, even though an Iron Age civilization had existed on the Ganges since at least 1800 BC. It is also not what the ancient Sumerians actually recorded, so accepting it, means believing that modern Assyriologists know more about ancient Sumer, than the ancient Sumerians themselves. Given that the ancient Sumerians lived through it, and all Assyriologists have to go on is random bits of clay tablets, and mostly ruined city mounds, this seems like an incredible stretch of the imagination. The fact is, Assyriologists can't, and don't, need to explain the anachronisms, because the Mesopotamian timeline is synchronized with the Egyptian timeline, which Egyptologists insist on keeping as short as possible. The idea that the ancient Sumerians, built their earliest cities in the marshlands of southern Iraq, using stone imported from other countries, is entirely illogical, they would have simply built them using mud bricks, as they did in the later periods. As the stone had to have been locally quarried, the region could not have been a marshland when the earliest cities were built, meaning that the oldest levels of Uruk, and Eridu, must date back to before the region began turning into a marshland, circa 9000 years ago. The fact that they switched to using mud bricks, simply proves that the water levels rose during the course of Sumerian history, flooding their farmlands, and ultimately, forcing the Mesopotamian cultures to migrate northward to Akkadia, Babylonia, and Assyria. The fact that Assyriologists ignore the ancient Sumerian records of the Antediluvian era, is probably for the best, as they cannot even accept that the first Kish dynasty went back to 25,000 BC, even though it has been proven that grains were being farmed in the region at that time. Unfortunately, the timeline of Egypt and Sumer, are the two pillars that ancient history is built around. As the early Sumerians were trading with the early Egyptians, Assyriologists have been forced to synchronize the Mesopotamian timeline, with the preposterous timeline used by Egyptologists. While this means that most of Sumerian history has to be ignored, it also affects the timelines of all other Eurasian cultures in contact with the Mesopotamians. The Harappan civilization of ancient India, was trading with the Sumerians throughout its history, 
and went into decline around the end of the Sumero-Akkadian dynastic period, which means the entire Harappan civilization is forced to correlate with the short conventional Mesopotamian timeline. This forces the entire Harappan timeline into a period of 2000 years, even though some of the archaeological sites in Pakistan and India, have been carbon dated back to over 8000 BC. These broken timelines then fan out further, pulling the Minoans and Greeks, Iranians, and Chinese, into this confusing mess. This is the end of this episode of the Broken Timelines podcast. For the complete text, notes, and quotations, please read the complete collection of Broken Timelines books, available at Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Gardner's, Google Play, Kobo, Script, Walmart, and many other vendors, as well as most public libraries.